a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. And hi, Patty. Yeah, it's good to have you having my back, too. <laughs> good to have, good to be back, right? Thank you, guys. It's great to see you again. Um, those of you who, oh, let me hit the record button. Those of you who are uh, paying attention and watching the live stream, you just got to see our latest video for the uh, Road to Karachi. So for our, our mission as a family going to Pakistan. A little bit of a longer video, I know, but it answers so many of the really asked for questions, the really asked questions. Uh, why? And and it's a they're they're valid questions. You know, why is a very valid question with this sort of a thing and and we get that. And so we wanted to put this out there getting the answers directly from the church leaders and and people from the actual area. And it's it's just I think it's a great thing to see. So hope you guys enjoyed that and, and learned a little bit of it and got excited because we're excited. It's good. Well, on to sip and study. Sip and study today. We, we're, I, I feel like I say this a lot. We're doing something a little different. It's every time you get into the word of God, you're going to hit things that are just a little different, right? And then this time is no exception. Right. This is a little different, but it's a little different because of a different reason. So today we're on lesson number 17 on the gospel according to John. We just finished, you know, we're just getting back from from our summer, I'd, li- I'd like to say break, but really our summer like missions tour going, traveling all over the place where we just couldn't do this. I couldn't keep up with this going all the places that we were going. So we're back. And so we're getting back into studying the gospel according to John. And we're starting off essentially at, at chapter eight. We're starting out off at 753 and then going into that through that first section uh, to 811 in the gospel according to John. And we've called this controversy and adultery. Now, ad- adultery is considered a controversy of its own, right? So it, it would make sense that that would be the controversy. It's not. This is this is one of the most controversial pieces uh, inside of the New Testament. Uh, New Testament, excuse me, man. Coffee kick in a little faster this morning, please. But this is one of the most controversial sections in the entire New Testament. And when we started sip and study. One of the things that we set out as, and by, I keep saying we, it was really me, Sunny helped. I think uh, my mom's Andy helped. We had a couple people feeding things in, but but really one of, one of the core fundamentals of doing this was want to be open and transparent. People can feel like the church tries to hide things from them and there's little secrets that nobody ever gets to know about. We're not doing that. We're the whole point of this is to be completely open, completely transparent, and have this as an actual Bible study so that people can dig into the Word of God 
and and better understand what it is that God has said to his people. Well, God has said to the world, right? It's like when we went through John 3.16 and we looked at God so loved the world and there's so many different people wanting to, to spin that in every different direction. But when you get down to the Greek, world is actually cosmos, which is all of creation, right? So we we try to get beyond some of these, I don't want to say hidden points because they're not really hidden, but argued about points and get into, let's actually study this for for what it is. Well, this right here is a huge talking point and huge controversy. So the first half of this section is actually going to be going over the controversy itself. But let's let's look at it. Let's actually dig into this. Let's see what's going on. Hope you guys are ready. Have your Bibles ready. This is this is going to be a little bit of a doozy. So handling this with kids' gloves, please uh, stick through it. Stick through it. It'll be fun. It'll be good. You'll learn something, I promise. Uh, chapter 7, verse 53 through 811 in the English Standard Translation says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And this is a a beautiful piece, right? I've always loved this story, this part of scripture, right? Seeing Jesus bending down, writing in the dirt, showing that even sins that we we all want to point fingers or or if we've been a part in something like that that we feel like we could never be forgiven of because we've done so much, quote unquote, whatever, right? It's how we feel um, that God can still forgive. There's nothing that we've done that is beyond the scope of God's forgiveness, right? And it's a huge thing. It's great. So it's a beautiful thing like that. But I, I want to point something out really, really fast. Look at the screen. There's something a little different about this. Do you notice that this section is surrounded by double parentheses? There's a reason for that. So let's take a look. Breaks down. We're going to go over controversy, the actual controversy. It's going to be probably the first half, maybe even a little longer, but we're going to probably keep it down to around half. Uh, is going to be dealing with the actual controversy itself. 
around this section. And then we're going to dig into the actual section itself with the adultery and, and what Jesus was teaching, what's going on. Okay. So what is the controversy around this particular section? Well, the Textus Receptus, which is the Greek Bible, it is the the primary uh, manuscript that is used, including some extra Greek manuscripts, but it is the primary manuscript that's used when you look at the King James and the New King James Bibles, okay? So things that are done off of the King James platform pull off of the Texas Receptus, which is the primary mid to late I, I, it's, it's not, it's by no means one of the earliest manuscripts. It's not even in the earlier of the manuscripts. It's like middle late kind of thing, right? It's, it's, there's a lot of stuff that we have that is, that predates this by quite a ways, but that manuscript, as well as a lot of other Greek manuscripts after it has this section. Okay. That is why this section was included in the King James version and the new King James version. Well, it became church tradition. Now, I know that sounds incredibly strange. Well, it doesn't when you realize that this section is not included in any of the earlier manuscripts that we have. None. It basically just appears starting in Greek, and then you can watch a funnel system of it starting to go out and, and branch out a little bit and becoming more and more prevalent the later in time it gets. But we're not talking close to it. We're talking considerable ways off, right? But because this is not included in the earlier manuscripts, it leads most scholars. I wrote many digging a little bit more. It really, from what I can find, it is most. Most biblical scholars do not believe that this section was actually in the gospel of, according to John, was actually in the original gospel account, okay? That this was not there, but it was added later by a scribe or a group of scribes. For what reason? It's mm, a great question, right? There's a couple reasons for this. Not only is it not in the earlier manuscripts, but the language in this section is unlike the rest of the gospel itself, okay? Not saying that it's in a different language. No, it's in the same language, but the way that it's written is unlike the rest of the way that the gospel of John is written. Not only that, there are actually several words in this one particular section that are not used at all in the entirety of the rest of it, like the entire rest of the gospel according to John. That and, and there's more, but just taking down to these two really key things, because these two key things, at least to me, they, they say enough. Um, it's in an incredibly strange placement. Not only is it in an incredibly strange place, but depending on the manuscripts that you go back to and find that it's in at that mid to late section of manuscripts going forward in Greek, it's in different places. Sometimes it's here at John 53 through 811. Sometimes it's at right after John 736. Sometimes it's in John chapter 21. And other times it's in the gospel according to Luke. It's in the gospel of Luke. 
When it appears, it appears in multiple different areas, which would lead one to believe that this was kind of a, mm, like a, an oral tradition kind of a thing that just got inserted and added on, which is a little, a little weird. But when I say that it's in the finished product right here, it's in an odd place. If you look at the scripture, if you actually open up your Bible and take a look at the actual section here, this finishes up. You were having, you were having the, uh, Feast of Booths or the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Tab Tabernacles, okay? And if you look at starting like 45, chapter 7, verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this. Remember, asking, they're asking him, are you from Galilee too? Like this is just a really weird se section. Jesus had been teaching. It's, it's odd. Well, if you take this section out, Right? No prophets, no prophets arises from Galilee, which by the way, was completely false. Go, go back to the last one, completely false. And you go then directly to verse 12 in chapter eight, it starts up again in a really natural spot. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever so follows me will not walk in darkness. So you have this section to where Jesus is teaching. You have the sidestep of officers talking to the Pharisees and Jesus teaching again. Like it actually flows really, really beautifully and really, really naturally. Whereas with this, all of a sudden they're saying, well, the nighttime happened, which it could have, right? I mean, it, this could have happened after a couple days. It could have happened in a section, but it's just in a really awkward placement that can it work? Yes, it can. In fact, there are scholars that, that full on believe this legitimately happened. And, and we'll get there. Okay. Hang on. We'll get there. Excuse me. But because this section is so, so different, it's in a, an odd placement and it only arises so often, like after a certain date, many, many believe that this is extra biblical, that it is uninspired and it is a later addition. Thus, many Bibles, in fact, most Bibles anymore, will have a note with this section saying that this is not in the earliest manuscripts. Even the New King James Bible that I have notates. Now, it's not like double parentheses. It's not, it's not in like a very prominent spot. But if you glance down to the notes section, it actually has and says that this section is not in the earlier manuscripts. But they maintain it as regular. Whereas the ESV does the double, double brackets on it. Um, other translations will also do double brackets. I think the NIV, at least online, what I was saying, had extra notations on it as well. Most have some form of extra notation saying that this section is not in the earlier manuscripts. Okay, now the people who believe that this should be in the scriptures, who believe that this is authentic and needs to be in the scriptures itself... There are many of them still, many who say it shouldn't, many who say it should. There's no defined consensus. A lot of people want to say that there is defined consensus here. I've been digging and I have not been able to define anywhere where every single person says, and obviously you're never going to get every single person, but even biblical scholars where all the biblical scholars are saying, yeah, this needs to be pulled because if all the biblical scholars said this should be pulled, it would be pulled by now, right? That makes sense. It's not. 
So, um, but anyway, those who say that they should be here, they they say they have several reasons. So let's look at a couple of those as well. Looked at a couple reasons why it should maybe be pulled. Let's look at a couple reasons why it's here and why people say it should should remain. So the mere fact, and this is part, and honestly, I have no problem with this right here. This this line of reasoning, while it's not overly scholarly per se, it it uses uh, this wild concept known as common sense, and I can appreciate that. Okay, so so let's take a look. The mere fact that it is that it became so widely accepted. And that it is in so many manuscripts after that date. Now, mind you, these manuscripts are all hand copied, right? At this day, this this was well before the printing press. So everything was physically hand done. And so the, the mere fact that the belief of this gained so much momentum that it grew and it, it remained shows that it is at least, at least an already accepted oral account. Like it was already oral tradition. Now that could be, uh, at that point could be teachings inside of Orthodox and maybe Roman churches, things like that. And so then it just kind of populated. I, I don't know. I don't know. Wasn't there. Believe it or not, I wasn't alive at this time point. So I, I don't know. The other main reason, now there are a few other reasons, but the other main reason is that, and it's again, it's a big one. This actually does not contradict or go against any portion of scripture, of the rest of scripture, right? It doesn't go against anything else in the Bible. Rather, it actually fits it. Not only does it fit the narrative, it fits historically with who we know Jesus was. And, and through all of the biblical and extra biblical writings that we have on Jesus, we see that this is actually the, the personality and the, the type like Jesus is. So it fits Jesus it fits the sorts of things that happened at these festivals, and it fits the doctrinal truths and standings of the Bible. This does not change the word of God by having it in or out. It merely gives a better view. Interesting. I Okay. I, I like that. To me, I, I kind of liken that to like uh, uh, the song Amazing Grace, right? There's a lot of biblical concepts in that. It is a very biblical, biblically based song, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's not in the Bible. It's not the Bible. So, but that doesn't mean that you don't learn from it and it doesn't mean you don't grow from it. We see in 2 Corinthians, I'd have to pull it up. Sorry, I'm just thinking this on the spot. So Holy Spirit revelation kind of moment thing. We see in 2 Corinthians that we are living epistles, like we are our own stories, right? We are the letters God has written, not on stone and not on paper, but on the hearts of man that we become the living epistles that, that we share. And so people learn from us. We are part of the narrative. We are part of the story, right? We are part of it. Some people come to Jesus simply because of the people that they know, not because they're opening up a book and reading a book, but because they got to know Jesus through someone else. Okay. So that's why it's so important that our lives fit in God's plan, that our lives fit the narrative. So it's, it's really important. So that with this, it's the same thing. It's like, it, it doesn't go against scripture. It actually fits. It, it's in a weird place. Uh, mind you, it's written a little differently. Mind you, granted, but it doesn't contradict. And 
it if it is an extra biblical story that got inserted into the text at some point in time, we can at least say God maintained that our doctrine would not be altered, that our understanding of who he is is not altered, that our understanding of Jesus is not altered, that this does not change the Bible. Now, some believe that it was in the original gospel. Mind you, we don't have these. We don't have the original actual text, the actual original manuscript. Some of these were written on like papyrus, which is a woven fabric type thing. And it, it, these they're gone. Whether they were burned, they just disintegrated over a couple thousand years or whatever. We just haven't found them maybe. We just don't have them. We do not have the original documents. Okay. So some believe that this potentially was actually in the original, but that it was too controversial for a couple reasons. One, remember, women in this point of history were not seen like women are seen today. They were seen, I don't want to say like property, but kind of like property. I mean, they were, they were, they they, they did not have the same rights as men. They did not have any of these other things, but they just plain and simply, they didn't want this is the the reasoning here, right? They wouldn't have wanted um, people to think that adultery was now okay. They didn't want to see family structure. Um, and again, I probably leaning to to women. They didn't want to see women with husbands that weren't great husbands just going around and doing things with other guys and and thinking this is fine now. It goes both directions, but I'm just saying they didn't want they didn't want problems to arise. That's the, the the thought here, the concept, right? It's too controversial. They didn't want people to actually think that adultery is fine and they can go ahead and just go and do it. And so they potentially removed it from the original. But then scribes following the Holy Spirit, either finding the original or a super early manuscript that again, we don't have, then put it back in. Okay, that is a possibility. I cannot and will not deny that that is a possibility. We don't have record of it, but it is a possibility. However, it is important to, to, to note, and again, I'm just going to say this again. This section makes zero, zero changes in biblical understanding, theologically or doctrinally, or even historic views on Jesus. Keeping it in the scripture, if this is an, an, an addition, which... Being a, if you're into personalities and into the disc assessment, I am what is known as a high C. Like that's why I do this kind of a Bible study. To me, it's incredibly important that we look at the facts and we stick to the facts and and we don't change things. So for me, if this is extra biblical, I, I want it pulled out because I want my word of God to be the word of God. I'm not having anything added to it. However, it is something to where even myself, I recognize. This doesn't change it makes it to where we have a better view and a better understanding. I've always loved this story. I still love this story. Um, but I think it's just important that we keep in mind that this section potentially is more of just a story and less Bible scripture. Okay. Even though it's there, this might not necessarily be. There's very few times will you ever hear me say, um, you can kind of just wash over that part of the Bible because all is good for reproof. All is good for growth. All of it is good for this. This is one section, one section. But the good thing is, is again, it doesn't change anything. And that's why I don't even know that I'd say that here because 
you're not learning anything wrong. You're actually learning good. This, and we'll get to that again when we get into digging through it. This is good. There is not a sin that you or I or anyone has committed that is beyond the scope and the realm of God's forgiveness. That is the lesson here. And that is a good lesson. And this points it out very well. Okay, continuing on with the controversy. We're almost done with this section. Okay, promise. There is a section, a, a section. There is a thing. There is uh, an area of study and an area of work inside the scholarly realm that is known as textual criticism. Okay, textual criticism. And this is a very important thing. And, I, and I'm going to talk about this for a moment just because I don't want to just give you information and have you say, okay, well, Drew said it, so therefore. That's not the point here. The point here is not for you to sit here and think that uh, I am the full-on authority or I am just trustworthy because. The point here is to give you the information so that you can make informed decisions. You need to decide on your walk with God with God. Okay, I'm just here trying to help with that, give you as much information on this as I can so that you and your walk with Jesus can be better. Okay, but textual criticism, textual criticism is the analysis of different handwritten manuscripts, ancient documents, right? Handwritten ancient documents to correlate and authenticate the source material. In essence, it's the science behind confirming information that is copied by hand. Notice this. This is a science. Okay, it's also an art because handwrite, handwriting is very weird, right? It's a different thing, but it is also a science. There is a science to this. Now, if you listen to people who, who want to criticize, and I love this, everything's online these days. Somebody's watched a YouTube video or read a, a, an article somewhere on Yahoo and there's there's thousands of errors in the Bible, and you guys are stupid and believe that it is perfectly in, inerrant. Like there's no issues with it within it whatsoever. Okay, I would like to point something out. These people actually have not done any kind of study in textual criticism. Hey, sip and studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. Yes, I will start off with saying, yes, they are right. There are thousands of errors in the early manuscripts. These errors are spelling differences and primarily grammatical issues. 
And why? Because there are words that look like the same words. And when you're copying from hundreds of years old papyrus that might have woven lines going through it, you might get a slight spelling change or the word changed in spelling over the years. And so they spell it a little differently. How about when they started adding punctuation, which by the way, was not in the original. That then can be seen and viewed as an actual error in itself because it's not in the original manuscript. So yes, there are thousands of differences. Staggering number of inconsistencies is how a lot of people will put that. It's incredibly misleading. There's not. It's all spelling and grammatical issues. Quote, issues. They're not even issues. If you, if you go, blueletterbible.org is a phenomenal resource. It's a great way to where you can dig through the, the, the Greek. You can look at the Hebrew. You can look at the Aramaic, depending on what section of scripture you're looking through. You can actually view the original language and, and you can hit on the word or phrase and it'll take you into the, uh, a definition section of that word or phrase. And you'll see usually there's three or four versions of that word or phrase because these different manuscripts over the language changes over time, you'd see it as a slightly different word spelled slightly differently. That does not make it an error. That does not make it a, an issue or a change. That means that we have updated our spelling of the word. So staggering number of inconsistencies is incredibly misleading and factually inaccurate. There actually aren't these issues. But where we do and where we have found issues, and this is why textual criticism is an incredibly important thing for us to understand here. We have looked at manuscripts across the board. And when you do that, when you're looking at textual criticism like this, it gives us an opportunity to go through and change, excuse me, gives us an opportunity to go through and recognize, okay, we have things that were 100 years after it was originally written. We have five there. We have 10 that were 200, 100 or 300. And you start looking and you go, well, this, these, these for the first 400 years, these are identical. And then all of a sudden there's this one change. And then from there on, it starts looking like, but it happened, the earliest we can find happened in this section. And then... The later out we go, we see that that starts spreading. Like you can actually go through and you can map it out and watch these things shift and change. And so that you can actually narrow everything back down and find what the original context is so that we can be incredibly confident that we know what the original writings were. Okay. It's a huge game changer. It's a beautiful thing. We have literally thousands, thousands of manuscripts. We have over 5,000 either full or partial manuscripts in Greek, 10,000 in Latin and in other languages, and another nearly 10,000. That's 25,000 manuscripts, ancient manuscripts. I want to put that into perspective. We have roughly 300 manuscripts of Homer's The Odyssey and 10 manuscripts of Julius Caesar. How many scholars and professors are debating the authenticity of the Odyssey and the credibility of Julius Caesar? They don't. They don't. Even though the Odyssey was actually an oral tradition and it was written from last I understood, it was written like hundreds of years later. Whereas the gospel according to John was written by John 
the apostle of Jesus. Not even a hundred years later. In fact, go back to the first lesson of this and find out how long after was this written, right? This wasn't, this isn't hundreds of years later. I get it. The, the authenticity of Julius Caesar and the authenticity of the, the Odyssey are not life-changing and, and f- f- eternity-changing things. This is. But we have done the work. People have done the work. We have verified all of this stuff. Okay, so the majority of these manuscripts, when we look at these manuscripts, do not have this section, especially the earlier ones do not have this section. There are over 900 that do contain this lesson or, or this section. Think of that. 20, we have 25,900 have it. Less than 125th. Less than 125th has this section. So this does seem to lend to the credibility that this is not actually part of the original text. But it is in, this, in the manuscripts that the King James Version uses the Textus Receptus and, and others from the Greek era of that, okay? And that's why there are some verses that the King James and the New King James will have that other translations, they don't even physically put in there because we're talking a word or two or a, 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 a verse, not an entire big section. And this is a big section. And they keep this full section in here, again, because this one's actually still debated. It is actually debated still. So it's still there with notes stating this. However, again, this does not mean that this is a bad teaching or that it's leading people astray, right? We should keep in mind that with so many manuscripts, with such a vast array of manuscripts available, we can rest assured that we have the original wording and meetings and the in- incredibly few areas where there may be variations other than, other than uh, spelling errors, or uh, grammatical errors, the punctuation differences, things like that. The very few areas where we have some mild debate, like the Textus Receptus has this, so the King James and them have it, and the rest of them pull it out because the earlier manuscripts, the other, uh, what, 24,000 manuscripts don't have it, and so the other translations pull it out. Uh, These little tiny spots, they do not impact the doctrine of the Christian faith. Okay. They do not impact our view of Jesus and they do not impact doctrine or theology. So let's leave it at that. Cool. Is everybody okay on this? We, we have a, a decent understanding. Everything's okay. We're good. If we're good, um, let's, let's dig into this actual section. It's not, not a huge section. Um, and actually, because this is not included in most, uh, in most of the translations, excuse me, it's not included in most of the manuscripts and translations add the note that this might not, it's not in there. So hmm, there's not a ton of extra notes that a lot of pl- people and places have on this because it's not in the original. So it's, it's a nice story. And so we want to approach this as a nice story. It is a nice story that is included in the Bible as a story. Okay. I want you to realize that, that to look at this section, maybe not realize is the wrong word, but look at this section as a nice story. It's, it's biblically based, like it's in the Bible, but it's like there are parts of the Bible where it's telling a story, right? The, like we're not expecting the, the trees of the fields to physically clap hands, okay? We're expecting something different, right? So this can be a nice story. So we'll look at it as such. Now there is, 
there is a good possibility. There's a possibility that this actually happened. And, and so we're, we're still going to break it down, tie it to other pieces of scripture, see how this works. But it's in any which way, realize this flows with the rest of the text. It's not a problem. It's, it, it could just be a nice story. They went each to his own house, but then Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. Now, again, with, with the flow of scripture, it's a little weird trying to say now all of a sudden everyone went to their own house. It's just a nice way to show this was a break of day. Change of day, this happened afterwards. So we had been in the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles, whichever way you want to look at it. And that day is done and over. This is That section is now over. It's a transition period, okay? Everyone went to their house. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Some want to say this is a representation of um, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head kind of a thing. Find that in Luke. Um, but anyway, doesn't matter. Jesus didn't go to a house. He went and prayed. Uh, oftentimes when we see Jesus on the Mount of Olives, he's praying. So uh, most likely spending time with the Father, praying. Um, now, early in the morning, this this word literally translates to dawn. At dawn, Jesus uh, came again to the temple. He came again to the temple. Okay. Now, all the people came to him. Again, talking about the, the Feast of the, the Tabernacle or Feast of Booths, beginning in chapter 7, verse 2 says, now the Jews' Feast of the Booths was at hand. Well, now that feast is now over. So this is the end of that, okay? That ended the day before. Remember, Jesus was teaching. That's when the Pharisees were like, why didn't you bring him here? This is the last day and didn't happen. No one's ever been like this guy. Okay, so that it, that ended. So this is following that timeline. Uh, so many would still be in Jerusalem. So with this story saying, this is following that same timeline, the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is over with. And therefore, it's been overnight. There's still a bunch of people in Jerusalem. Everybody comes from all over the place and, and floods into the city. They're not leaving the, at the very end of it. It's not like today where they can hop in their car and a bunch of people are just driving overnight. They stay that extra night and they leave the next morning. Okay. So there's still a lot of people in town ready for this. And so this would be a good time for Jesus to again just go and start teaching. A rabbi uh, who is making waves, Jesus was definitely making waves. Uh, would still be there teaching and that would still draw a crowd. And we see that he sat down and taught them. That almost sounds like an awkward uh, an awkward thing. Because when we see our pastors, especially here in Western context, most of the time our pastors, our teachers are standing. Everyone's sitting and the pastor is standing and they're they're walking and they're presenting and and to stand is the person who's standing is the person who has the authority, right? We It's not something that we really talk about. We don't think about that. But because of our cultural norm, the person in the room, if everyone's sitting, the person who has the authority to speak is standing. We see it in schools. We see it at church. see it at town halls. If you want to speak, you stand, right? You raise your hand or whatever, I'm going to speak, and then you stand up, and now you have the floor. Okay? It was reversed. To sit, for a rabbi in that era, to sit was actually to give that teaching stance. That was your thing of authority. I don't have to prove myself. I'm just going to sit down. All right, let's teach. Let's go over this. Let's dig in. Here we go. And so he sits down and he begins to teach. Now the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst 
They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So in the middle of Jesus' teachings, these educated leaders, remember Pharisees are their small political sect, but they are very well educated, very, very well educated, and quite frankly, very power hungry. And so they quite abruptly and quite rudely interrupt his section. Now, I'm saying that not just to, to interject some Druisms here with the rudely. This actually would be considered quite rude and, and very inappropriate for them to do something like this. But they're trying to detract from Jesus's authority and show that they have the authority. So they try to steal the authority back by, by interjecting themselves in the situation in Jesus's teaching period. So this, this group of educated leaders comes in, brings a woman who was accused of adultery, they say found in the act. <sighs> All right. Rudely interrupting again, but the Pharisees were bent on giving people a reason to distrust Jesus. And we, we see this time and time again, but let's look earlier in chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 45 and 40, through 47. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers said, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? See, they, they are under the belief that Jesus is a false teacher. He is a false prophet and that he, he's leading people astray. Potentially, they just don't, they don't want someone to take their authority and their power. So they're, they're fighting against this. Okay. Five to six. Now in the law, Notice the law is capitalized because they are talking about the law handed through Moses, right? The Ten Commandments and potentially more because the Pharisees loved to add a bunch of impossible pieces to the law to, that no one could follow so that they would look better than everyone else. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? I'm going to pause there for a second. They're pulling from Deuteronomy chapter 22. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 24. So verses 23 to 24. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, that's the very biblical way and polite way to say this, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them, them, them. I'm reiterating, I'm not stuttering, them to death with stones. I, I'm doing that because Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek are both, are all three much more specific than English. And I want to point out that we have tried very hard to keep the directness here in English. <clears throat> Bring them both, stone them with stones. There's a point to that. Sorry. The young woman, because she did not cry for help. Yeah, I'm looking at the screen. Sorry. Those of you listening to the audio version, I just stopped and looked at the screen. It wasn't, it wasn't as awkward. But one young woman, because she didn't cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, so basically saying she wanted it, right? This wasn't a raping. If it was a raping, she's crying for help. Right, you need to ask for help. Anyway, the man, because and I'm not making a political statement there, people. I'm just saying that is the reasoning that that is here in the text, written the way that it was. It's just logic. Anyway, and the man because he violated his neighbor's wife. Okay, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is the section in Deuteronomy that they're pulling from. There are others, but 
what do you say? Now, this this is very interesting. And again, it's because the Greek is so specific and emphatic. This you is a very emphatic you. This is a direct challenge towards Jesus. Because in this time in history, the Jews were in a very interesting predicament. They have their religious Jewish laws coming from Moses and coming from God, right? Not from Moses, but Moses passed them, you know, God passed them to them through Moses. So they have the Jewish law, the law, but they're under Roman rule. And so they have to also follow Roman law. They contradict each other here. If you follow the Jewish law, the way the Pharisees are trying to, um, interpret said law, they will be breaking the law of Rome. Hmm. Take a look at, at again, they're still going to be in John, but look at chapter 18, verse 31. And this is, they, they brought Jesus to Pilate. Pilate's like, I don't want anything to do with this. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pause, because he's not done anything wrong in the eyes of Rome. He didn't break any laws. Continuing on. The Jews said to him, quote, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They are not referring to under their own ordinances. They are referring to the fact that as a Jewish under Roman rule, a Jew under Roman rule, they were not authorized to stone or to kill for, for religious reasons under Rome. Couldn't do it. That was considered murder in Rome. And so they are directly challenging Jesus. Okay, rabbi, great teacher. We are wise, educated, and higher above everyone else that's around here that's dumb enough to listen to you. We just caught this woman performing adultery. We caught her in the act. Here you go. What do you do? Do you stone her according to the law? Hmm. What you got? Okay, we get to verse six. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Right? Because either you're going to follow the Jewish law and be a true Jew, or you're going to follow the Roman law and, well, if you're following the Roman law, then you're not a real Jew and you shouldn't be teaching, right? You can't be seen as a true teacher. They think they've put him in a predicament that he all of a sudden, it's a lose-lose for him, okay? And we saw see this, and again, this is part of the reason why we'll say this flows with Scripture because the Jews did this to him by the Jews. I don't mean the Jewish people. I mean the Jewish authorities, primarily the Pharisees and, and the 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 Jewish council, okay, the Sanhedrin, which was primarily run by Pharisees. Anyway, um, they tried to put him in a position where he had to lose, and they did this a lot, and Jesus always prevailed, right? Jesus bent down, continuing in verse 6, Jesus bent down, mind you, he's still sitting, so he's just bending over, bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, this has always made me wonder, what is he writing? What is he writing? Is he writing the Ten Commandments? Is he writing that section in Deuteronomy? Is he writing love your neighbor as yourself? 
assuming that this is something that is an actual narrative that potentially happened, I would love to know what is it that he wrote. Verses 7 to 8. And they continued to ask him. So he stood up, right? He stood up. And they... And as they continued to ask him, he stood up. I, I added the as or uh, and he. But anyway, he stood up and said to them. Now, I, I love this. Stop again for one second. We think in our modern day Western context, he's standing up. I, I want to view him, I think, from most like most people would, puts his hands on his hips. I'm, I've got authority. I'm taking authority. This. That's not the case here. This is reversed. Teachers sat. Teachers sat. To sit was to show authority. He stood up showing humility and grace, giving them the authority, saying, hey, you know what? It's okay. He stood up and said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And one more, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Again, what was he writing? Man, I wish I knew what he was writing. Okay, the Jewish custom, again, standing was a sign of respect. Jesus was not trying to teach, but he was showing respect to the leaders there. Right? Which is an interesting, it's, I, shows like, uh, man, I, it shows how, how big of a man Jesus was, right? Hey, stand up. I'm going to show you authority. Okay. You want a stoner? Because that's the law? Great. But the first person to throw the stone has to be sinless. Okay, wow. That would mean that Jesus would be the only one that was there that could actually do the stoning. But then he bends back down and continues to write. Whatever it is that he's writing. I'd like to think that he sat back down and bent over because otherwise he's just bending over, which would be awkward. Maybe he stooped down. I don't know. 9-11. 9-2-11. Finish this up. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Hang on. The Greek here is not specific on who they are. As I dig through this, I'm not able to find out a, a direct definition of this they. It is actually done in phrases, and it's almost like compiled together. The way that this is written, it's almost as if they're saying, when, here, leave. Like, it's just, it's very abrupt and shorthand. And it's it's because it's understood inside of the language. But because it was the Pharisees who had brought this woman trying to condemn, it is, in my mind, now, granted, this is, this is, this is me, how I'm viewing this and going over this. Uh, it could be either way. It could be physically everyone that was there that was listening to Jesus left. I think more realistically, it was the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders that brought the woman trying to get her stoned that left. Okay. That's how I'm reading this. This is more plausible that it was those that the, the, those who were there to learn from Jesus already stayed and were still there. These people came in and lack of a better term, euphemism style, I guess, they bum rushed Jesus on the spot and bam. And then all of a sudden, that's, that's just it. And, but that's, that's what I'm getting out of this. Okay. Now we'll continue on. Do, 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 do nine. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? 
has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So has no one condemned you? Jesus was making it clear that she was not going to be killed. Right? You're, you're okay. This is not death. But I, I think go and sin no more, that saying uh, forgiveness is not condoning sin, that there is a call to repent, to, to turn from sin, and to walk in God's way. Now, I think, and this is interesting, and part of the reason why this, this story is always captivating, is so captivating and weird, is technically, if they were going to really try to stone, they were going to have to try to bring both of them to stone. And so it's just odd that there's only one. That is a very odd thing. Anyway, takeaway, what can we take from this? We have more ancient manuscripts of the word of God than any other ancient document, giving us a great view and understanding of what the original authors wrote and were meaning. Okay, nearly all discrepancies throughout these manuscripts, nearly all, not all, but nearly all, are grammatical errors, save a few. And we can trace the other errors, and they have either been removed from the vast majority of, of uh, the texts. Like, again, King James, New King James, because they actually, they, they hold that textus receptus as such high regard. If it's in that, that is it, and that is, that's done. Nothing else matters. If it's in this one, it doesn't matter. Finding earlier ones, this is it uh, to them, okay? So, but we have been able to trace these others and most other uh, translations pull them out. That is part of the reason why I say uh, that the King James, while is still a beautiful translation and is a good translation, the New King James is still a very accurate translation for the parts that it, it has. But because of the manuscripts that they use, it's actually not the most accurate translation that you can have. Just plain and simple, it's not. It's a great one. I still do a lot of study through it. I am not throwing that under the bus and saying, toss that baby out with the bathwater. It is still a great Bible, great translation. And I do a lot of study and teaching outside of that. It works beautifully, okay? Just know that there might be, there are going to be a few little pieces here or there that are different than the other translations because of the manuscripts that they pull from. But these variants throughout the Bible, they do not change the message or alter the doctrine, okay? They do not alter our view on God or on Jesus, okay? Now, on this particular section, we can take away that this, that this section works hand-in-hand hand with the rest of Scripture. It does not contradict or change things with or without it, right? We can pull it out, and it doesn't change the Word of God. Leaving it in there does not change our view on God or Jesus. It does bring a, free, a few great points into light with it, though. No sin is beyond God's forgiveness. It makes that pretty clear, and I love that. Even knowing that, we're still called to repent and to sin no more. We are called to see the freedom of forgiveness as a reason to rejoice in God's design and therefore in God's will, in his way, and not a reason to rebel against him and just go and live and do whatever it is that you want to that makes you, quote, feel good. Living your best life, end quote, I don't like that saying, but whatever, living your best life should actually be living with God in the way that he wants you to live because quite frankly, he designed the world, he designed the universe, he designed you, and he holds everything together in this. If you actually want to live the best life you can, the only way you can do that is in, in the way that it's designed to be lived. So that's how we should be doing things. Thank you, God, so much for today and for this this 
piece in the Bible. God, it's still in the Bible. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't supposed to be there, if this is something to where you were totally against it, I'm convinced you would have pulled this out. You, you already would have had it done and gone and, and it would be gone. God, maybe this is one of those instances where is a spiritual warfare kind of a thing. And, and even if that was the case, thank you for being so sovereign and so good that you were able to make sure that the word that we got today, over 2,000 years after Jesus came, that the words that we view and we read today are still in accordance of what you actually said, what you inspired that you continue to make things clear and lead your people in the right path, into your path. Father God, thank you so much. And thank you that no sin is beyond. No sin is beyond your capabilities to forgive. That you love your creation so much that you're willing to go beyond that. That you would rather have life with them, you would rather have eternity with them than to send them to damnation. Father, thank you for that. Be with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, everybody, have a great rest of your Saturday. Hope this was a good start to your weekend. Have a great weekend. We have a uh, backpack event that we're going to. In fact, we will probably leave right after I hit the stop streaming button. Uh, but we're going to go do a, a backpack drive to, to help out some uh, students. I mean, man stuff's expensive and families need help and love. So you know what? Go out and be the church. Love on people. Because remember, you are a living epistle. You might just be the only story of Jesus that somebody finds out today. So go and live it. Bless you guys. 